Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Naomi, 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 <laughs> Naomi. We, we are cursed. We are cursed. Listeners, you may not know this, or maybe you've noticed it. Maybe, maybe it's all in our heads. But every time we put out an episode of the Irish Passport podcast, something catastrophic happens in the British <laughs> government. In fact, I think that maybe... We should we should make some kind of deal with Ladbrokes or some kind of betting agency just to be a, just to give them a heads up that like we're putting out an episode tomorrow so you you should keep your eye keep on your Westminster eye on actually Westminster. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you might not have the same prime minister tomorrow well that's actually often it I think <laughs> I think that, I think this has happened before listeners yeah. in case you missed that one that was our War of Independence final instalment that we released on the twentieth of October just as Liz Truss was resigning unfortunately so go and check that out if you haven't listened to it or if it went unnoticed that day because it probably did okay Naomi before I say another word I think that today is the perfect day of all days for our Brexit soundtrack you are unaware or if you are listening at a later date yet another ridiculous set of chaotic happenings has taken place in the halls of Westminster in London with Liz Truss unceremoniously being booted out of her premiership and a new very vague race being announced we should reflect how like brief it's been I mean she's only been in office for something like 44 or 45 days like we just had yeah. a conservative leadership race and for a good chunk of that time like she wasn't even really governing because the whole country was in the mourning period for the queen so she's had like hardly any time in office but she managed to cause absolute financial turmoil in the time that she was there just like uh, they announced this big package of um, economic measures essentially big tax cuts wasn't clear where how they were going to be paid for um and they expected that the, you know the UK's deficit and borrowing would have to grow up grow a lot um so this sort of spooked international markets because it's a moment when there's a lot of economic uncertainty and making like dramatic declarations like this that basically didn't have the confidence of markets it ended up you know, making sterling drop, um, the cost that the UK has to borrow spiked. And there was even, the Bank of England was even forced to intervene to stop pension funds from toppling over, which was really scary, actually, because people were saying it was like a Lehman Brothers type moment, potentially, which is the famous, you know, collapse of the key bank that like set off the global financial crisis in 2007. So yeah, it was really, really dramatic. And people were looking at the UK from abroad being like, Uh Uh-oh, because the problem is when you have this kind of instability 
and collapse, it can have contagion effects because the global economy is so interconnected. Like loads of people's money is in Britain that you can have so you can have something like this spread from one vulnerable country to another. So there was a lot of alarm. Mm, yeah, actually, let's break this down a bit because yeah. I mean, it feels like a million years ago. It was like six days ago, um, <laughs> uh, but a lot happened, you know, very, very quickly and in a very short amount of time. And it was a lot to digest. Yeah. Um, if I understand this correctly, more or less, the markets reacted to the fact that what Liz Truss was announcing, Liz Truss and her chancellor, they hadn't actually figured out how they would pay for all of these things that they were announcing. Mm-hmm. And therefore that the markets just lost all confidence that the UK government knew what it was doing at all and yeah. couldn't trust anything that it was saying. Is, is that right? Yeah. So the way that countries pay for stuff that they do is that they borrow internationally on the international markets right they issue bonds and the rate of interest that they have to pay reflects how confident the lenders are that they're going to be paid back so if it's very risky and the lenders don't think that they're going to get their money back they charge a high rate of interest that's how it works Mm. right so essentially what you saw was decreased confidence that the UK was actually going to be able to repay its borrowing um, and, you know, this was reflected in ratings agencies who analyzed this stuff, like downgrading the UK or warning about a potential downgrade. The problem is when this happens to countries is you can get into this terrible spiral because the more expensive it becomes to borrow, the more expensive it becomes to borrow and the worse that your balance sheet gets and the worse and the worse and the worse. So it can, like it can just it can turn into a like a vicious cycle. But that's normally, Mm. like the last time we've seen something like that happen in Europe was during the Eurozone crisis when you saw this this kind of chaos happening in Italy and Greece. And yeah, I mean, it topples governments um, because it's, I mean, you you need to be able to borrow to fund what you're doing to run the country, essentially. So it's like, it's fundamental. (laughs) So the fact was, though, that this wasn't imposed on the UK, like this was triggered by a prime minister coming out and just making these wild declarations or rather her chancellor, quasi Kartang, as you say. So, yeah, the financial market said no. (laughs) No, 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 you might even say. I've been reflecting over the last few months just the sheer frequency with which uh, the BBC references Margaret Thatcher. Oh. (laughs) The sheer amount of references that have been made to Liz Truss regards Margaret Thatcher when she's being like Margaret Thatcher or when she's not being like (laughs) Margaret Thatcher. It's It's like you can't actually win. Just measured against. I mean... I have heard uh, the analogy of turning, right? The lady's not for turning, this uh, famous phrase from Margaret Thatcher. Maybe, maybe more than a hundred times on UK media in the last few weeks. I mean, it is on almost every kind of (laughs) reference here. Uh, But we know that this was a stupid decision on Liz Truss's part. She knows it too. Why? Do do we know why she did this? Was it sheer incompetence or or was it like people have surmised some kind of pressure uh, coming from a certain area of the Tory party? Yeah, I mean, what I've read really is that these people are a group of essentially libertarians. Um, They believe in a small state, so they don't like the welfare state, essentially. They want low tax, um, small state Britain. And this was a a particular vision of Brexit and what Brexit could achieve like the sort of what did they call it Singapore on Thames or something like that that it would be um yeah low regulation low tax like very pro-business environment and that it would grow that way so leaving leaving the EU would give it the freedom to cut all the regulations and then out-compete 
the rest of Europe and that was the sole sort of economic rationale for a certain version of Brexit and so Liz Truss getting into power suddenly was this opportunity to test that theory and to try it out and it like just pretty much failed spectacularly um I mean there's different analyses about why um some compare it to the politics of Ronald Reagan over in the US um but the thing is that the US is a huge, huge, massive country that has the world's reserve currency, the dollar. So people are going to keep lending to you, even if you do things like this. Whereas the UK has sterling, which is actually at this point, you know, it's a vulnerable currency. You know, it's totally tied up with how much confidence people have in the UK. And the UK has been really unstable and is relatively pretty small in the global scheme of things. So it was... um an interesting move essentially that has really like the whole approach has really been discredited right okay now now i want to get on to what happens now uh, in a minute yeah. but i'm like just to kind of uh, circle back to why we would be talking about this at all this for many people has been seen as a kind of flowering or final kind of reaping the harvest of what was sown during brexit or even just the beginning of, of reaping the harvest Here's the Luxembourg Prime Minister, Xavier Bettel, giving his opinion on the whole matter. I think that the Brexit brought a lot of instability in the UK. And that is a pity because uh, I, 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 I've been here since nine years and I worked with, uh, with David, with Theresa, uh, and then they left. And um, I think the biggest mistake was Brexit and this brought a lot of instability. But uh, I hope that they soon be, be stable because even if they're not family members, they're still a friend and a neighbour. So we need them and they need us too. Bye. This was a sort of testing of one version of, of what Brexit was supposed to be for. Um, but, mm. you know, it's just been constant instability, particularly in the Conservative Party, essentially different factions in the Conservative Party vying for power. And, um, you know, t- taking down different prime ministers, you can look at just like at a timeline and the time that British politics started to go completely bonkers and become really unstable was pretty much from that referendum, which was so divisive. And essentially, like it just causes this really difficult thing for politicians to reconcile, which is that they have to avow to economic ideas that don't bear relation to reality. Um, and so there's this tension from when those ideas like hit reality and this has happened all over like over and over again like the idea that Britain could impose its will in negotiations with the EU even though it's the smaller party and like the with the weaker negotiating hand like that that isn't true the the wishing away of the geography of the UK and the fact of the border in Northern Ireland um between on the island of Ireland like just ignoring that like that ran up against reality as well it's like the current politics prevents like rational thought, you know, or like rational mm. approaches to to ordinary economic facts, I guess. Yeah. Right. Well, and the, the most kind of uh, robust and immovable economic fact, which is the international markets, mm-hmm. right? You, you know, you can't really gaslight them. Can exactly. You, you can't. That, well, that's what's <laughs> yeah. it. So, yeah, essentially, they, after coming out with this package, Kwasi Kwarteng was forced to resign first. He, he was replaced by um, Jeremy Hunt, who basically reversed everything and cancelled a load of tax cuts and just said, you know, tried to reassure the markets. But it seemed that the, like, the profundity of how much the Prime Minister's authority was shot by this sequence of events just meant that it was irreparable for her. And she was in time persuaded to go. 
During this 44 days, uh, I was looking at the media coverage kind of summaries of uh, what Liz Truss achieved during her short tenure, and all I took from it was um, two <laughs> two main messages, which was deliver, deliver, deliver. Okay. Which <laughs> it's very meaningful, Tim. That's a high content <laughs> slogan there. Deliver, deliver, deliver. <laughs> Deliver, deliver, deliver. What else were you planning to do? Well, you know, was it was that not a given in your in taking up this job? But fine. And the other one was growth, 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 which seems oh, it actually seems a little bit sad now considering considering what happened. Mm. Um, so not much happened uh, on that side of things. There was a shakeup of the government, of course. We had lots of uh, new people moving into Westminster positions. One of whom was Steve Baker, yeah. who moved into the position in Northern Ireland, and he apologized we didn't get a chance to really talk about this he apologized for something i don't know what he did actually i wasn't really even aware of who he was but he apologized for i suppose being kind of uh vulgar or bullish uh during the brexit period he's basically the guy who if he's coming on to the radio you know that you're about to hear something completely batshit like (laughs) okay <laughs> More or less. He's of those camps. He's one of those arch Brexiteers. And he apologized for not fully appreciating Ireland's concerns during the Brexit process, which was like huge because he's usually the most, mm. one of the most sort of like strident, unforgiving people who just was in denial about stuff like the border. And, you know, you, he used to talk a lot about. Oh, he wanted checks. He wanted checks on the island of Ireland. And he was just like, oh, we can just make it digital. It'll be fine. And like, this kind of stuff was like, no, you can't. Like, you know. Um, mm. So, um, yeah, that was that's the guy. And I guess it's strategic for him to say that because now he's like, so we're sorry we didn't take into account your concerns about an economic like trade border on the island of Ireland. So you have to take into account the unionist concerns now about such a thing happening down the Irish Sea, essentially. So there's a certain tactics to it, but it was still a big deal when he said that. It's just, you know, I think because it was coming from him. And also because, you know, he he basically got placed as a junior minister in the Northern Ireland office. That's the role that he was given. So it was very significant. Mm. He was going to be at the heart of trying to manage Northern Ireland's post-Brexit arrangements and come to an agreement, a settlement with the EU, which is still an open question. So like his position was really significant and everyone was like watching really closely to see what he was going to do, to see if there could be a chance for a deal and to settle all of this. And so coming with this apology early on, people were like really wanted to believe that this was going to, this was a good sign and this was going to mean that there would be a deal and the whole thing would be put to bed. Well, you know, I mean, like good sign or not, it was a different sign at least. And I mean, what kind of struck me was that somebody put into a position, somebody from the Westminster government put into a position of responsibility in Northern Ireland, got there and Mm. then did some homework about what they were supposed to do at all. Mm. Like that they even looked into what Northern Ireland was. When we consider the track record of of representatives um, uh, in those kind of roles that we've seen in the last few years. So the fact that that this guy actually even kind of looked into what he should be doing actually was seemed like a good seemed like a good sign. There seems to be a bit of tradition of these guys going over to Northern Ireland and then being like, oh, like oh yeah, (laughs) we had a previous (laughs) Secretary of State for Northern Ireland who said that before she went, she wasn't she didn't know that like Catholics tended not to be unionists and stuff like and she she revealed that she was like yeah I didn't know it's like 
what's the story with you getting appointed in the first place then? Like, really? <laughs> now, I, now, listen, I'm not going to mention any names, but some people in similar roles have tweeted surprisingly similar stuff to what we have happened to put out on our podcast the previous day as what? well. So I'm not really? sure if a few of them aren't, um, aren't honing up on what is supposed to be their job oh, by listening funny. to episodes of our podcast, which would be a bit depressing or maybe a bit good for us. I don't <laughs> oh know. God. Um, oh no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. That was actually, this yeah. did actually happen. There was a certain blue tick account who was just like tweeting these like revelatory bombshells, like, oh my God, the border is this or like it's stuff. And it was just like literally shit from one of our episodes. We were like, is he just it was verbatim. Is he listening to our back catalog? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. And he was on some sort of like train trip or around Northern Ireland or something was tweeting this stuff yeah that was it yeah we, yeah we were in a car and I was lazily on my um because we had just we had just published an episode um literally the the day before and I was reading out these tweets that were actually lines from our episode from this from this blue tick account but you know so just just to show you that yeah you know like homework is not always a strong point now listen um, so that was something that we could chart um, in what happened with the situation in Northern Ireland at this point, uh-huh. which is like, you know, this is a huge big situation that like nobody is even really beginning to address, right? The the executive is still collapsed in yeah. Northern Ireland. Um, and all of this chaos is happening in the meantime. It seems like, it absolutely seems like in this chaos in number 10, Northern Ireland is the absolute last priority. The collapsed executive hasn't been mentioned once in any of the media coverage that I've seen. So how can we describe like what Northern Ireland faces now uh, in Mm. in this context? Well, it's been another test of the Democratic Unionist Party's ability to just back the wrong horse. Like (laughs) Arlene Foster put out Mm. like a like picture of herself backing Liz Truss like early like for the leadership election saying like she was the only one that she could have faith in and stuff like this but anyway um yeah so Stormont continues to be collapsed and I suppose the hope is always that there'll be a return to stability and crucially a return to good relations between the British and the Irish governments which is crucial for this and then that will allow Stormont to get back up and running again um and for you know for that the DUP say that they they need an agreement um on on the protocol you know the the post brexit arrangements uh, for northern ireland that currently mean that in order to avoid an a border across the island of ireland you have some checks on goods between britain and northern ireland which they find unacceptable um mm. so yeah, when, when Liz Truss came in, it was actually really interesting to hear the reaction of EU leaders to her resignation yesterday. So I'm right, right now I'm recording in Brussels, I've been covering the European Council Summit, so the gathering of all the 27 national leaders. And it's funny, like the resignation, the news of the resignation broke like in the middle, literally when they were coming onto the red carpet, it came out. And so journalists actually sometimes like they broke the news to some of the leaders they were like Liz Truss is resigned (laughs) can we get your reaction Mm. and some of them were like oh (laughs) you know um but something that you heard a couple of times like fair play to them for thinking on their feet but I heard French President Emmanuel Macron and the Irish Taoiseach Micheál Martin they both said you know Liz Truss was actually constructive so like when she came Mm. into power she she went to this key meeting in Prague, which was this symbol of like rapprochement with the the rest of European countries. She significantly went along and she also mm. 
Like, nothing of substance happened in terms of talks, really, between the UK and EU, but there was talk of a potential window of opportunity for change that like they could come and finally resolve this this Brexit hangover, which is the protocol issue and the dispute over it. So there was hope for that. And she at least what she said was very positive. She did things that were very contrary to the sort of prospect of a deal, like introducing legislation to unilaterally override an international treaty. But that aside, she also did um, say the right things. So they were quite hopeful that something was going to come out of that. And now, now the whole thing is just thrown up in the air again because we just don't know who could come next. There's talk of Boris Johnson returning or it could be someone else. Right. Like, it's a wild card. And it's like, what will they do? Will they decide that they need to get the support of, you know, some wacky wing of the Conservative Party by deciding that they're going to start a trade war with the EU or what? You know, like, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. But, I mean, the best sort of... It's it's a kind of, um, like, a very depressing um, silver lining. But the silver lining that people are seeing is that, like, the UK has so many problems right now and they they see that they are vulnerable to economic consequences of things that they say and do. So they probably won't want to start a trade war with the EU. Like it's probably the last thing on their list. <laughs> oh, good. So, <laughs> so for that reason, maybe, you know, they need to just come to a compromise over this protocol thing. But yeah, in the meantime, Northern Ireland goes on without having a functioning executive and without just day-to-day governance, which its people need on issues like schools, public transport, all those ordinary things that you would expect in a functioning democracy. We actually have a clip of the Irish Taoiseach Micheál Martin speaking about this whole affair uh, just recently at the European Council. Uh, seeing the statement, uh, saw the statement of the uh, British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, uh, in terms of her decision to, to, to resign. Uh, on a personal level, uh, I, I sympathise with her. I think it's been a very difficult time f- for the British Prime Minister, given all that has happened um, and so on. Uh, and then, therefore, I think what's important f- as Britain's nearest neighbour, we uh, have significant economic and relationship and many other relationships with the United Kingdom. I think stability is very important and uh, we would like to see uh, the... the UK system within its capacity to uh, be in a position to uh, have a successor um, uh, selected as quickly as possible and that stability will be brought to the situation given the uh, fairly significant geopolitical issues facing Europe, not least uh, the issues I've just discussed, the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis. It's a matter for Britain and and, and the British political system, uh, but stability is important uh, during these times when a major war is, is on the way on the continent of Europe. Sorry. The T-shirt, sorry, the Liz Truss was intimately associated with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Would you hope her successor would take a much more pragmatic view and perhaps pause the bill while the negotiations are ongoing? Uh, I think the most important um, signal we could receive or, or, or intent would be um, genuine and substantive um, uh, engagement in, the, in, the, in talks with the European Union. Uh, so the mood music was improving, but what we actually need is, is, is concrete um, proposals from both sides to resolve outstanding issues in relation to the protocol. Uh, so uh, whoever becomes the new uh, British Prime Minister 
we would hope, given all that's going on in Europe and the world, uh, that a meaningful discussion would take place with the European Union to resolve the issues. Um, there is a window of opportunity to do that in respect of that bill. Um, I don't see that getting passed anytime soon within the House of Lords, at least that's what we're being told. Um, there's a more critical issue in relation to um, Northern Ireland and the, uh, the, the, you know, the very strong likelihood right now that we will not have an executive uh, or institutions restored by the end of the month. I would again call on the DUP uh, to take their seats in the Assembly um, and in the executive. Failure to do so, in my view, is a denial of, of democracy, a denial of the mandate that the electorate in Northern Ireland has, has given their elected representatives. There's really important stuff going on, right, in ordinary people's lives right now. The cost of living crisis all across the world is absolutely exploding. And it's particularly bad in the UK. Um, You know, people can't afford to heat their homes. Um, Like this is this. Sorry, I'm like, it sounds like it's funny, but it's not like this. You know, people are going to die because of these things this winter. Like there's all kinds of UK specific things that are going on, for instance, like Mm -hmm. um, the rise of food banks, like these huge dependence on food banks from like people with jobs you know people mm-hmm. with in- with two incomes um you know relying on food banks uh, just to feed themselves um Liz Trust just about kind of avoided a total disaster with energy bills um but that's still also going to be a massive problem as well and we don't know how the war in Ukraine is going to progress either mm-hmm. And when you add on to that the absence of an executive in Northern Ireland with all these other problems and and the fact that we are coming out of this massive, you know, economic um, hit that was the pandemic, it's just, it's it's unforgivable that the situation could be let like this. Yeah, it's not a pretty yeah. picture. It's not a pretty picture. As you say, there's UK specific things, but like the broader economic environment is pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Europe, essentially, like a lot of its wealth was just based off of cheap access to fossil fuels for ages. And that was just assumed like it was going to go on forever and it was good while it lasted. So nobody had a particular urgency to change it. And suddenly they're Mm. not cheap anymore. Um, Mostly because of like Russia cutting off the supply of gas that caused the market of gas to go crazy. Um, so yeah, suddenly that means that we're all a lot less rich, essentially, because mm. everything, energy is required for everything in the economy, and suddenly it's really expensive. So it's just like this massive wealth hit, and there's no easy answer mm. to doing it. It's just pretty much dumb policy. I mean, this was predictable. Russia used energy for geopolitical reasons for years against various small countries, and that was ignored. And everybody knew that we had to stop using this stuff anyway and move to renewables for climate change reasons. But they just sort of didn't bother to make those hard decisions, you know? And just sort of, well, you know, we'll let the market take care of it, we'll incentivize this or that, and it'll just sort of work itself out. But we're not going to make any major effort ourselves. And so that's the situation Mm. we're in. Now, of course, that's going to affect Ireland too, right? Because as I understand it, Ireland imports quite a lot of its electricity from the UK. Um, Ireland is 75% dependent on imports for gas. Yeah. And gas Mm. has a really important role in the, in electricity because it's basically like the fuel of last resort. So if you have, um, wind turbines or whatever, or solar panels, sometimes it happens that the sun isn't shining or the, or the wind isn't blowing. Um, and so mm. when when you don't have the electricity then to meet the demand, and particularly at peak hours, so like when everyone comes home from work at the same time and like puts the oven on or something like that, 
at those times they need this extra surge to meet demand. And then they literally fire up the gas plants. And the reason why they do that is because if you've ever turned on a hob, a gas hob, you'll appreciate mm. the gas just lights immediately. So you can just make, you can turn it off and on, right? Uh, in a way that you can't for other kinds of energy, which needs like warm up and you can't just switch it on and off and stuff. So that's the role that gas has. Mm. And unfortunately, the electricity markets are designed so that when that gas kit kicks in, the price of that gas then sets the price for every other kind of energy source in order to set the price for electricity. It's called marginal pricing. It's a certain design of a market and they thought it was a good idea. Essentially, they they invented this as a transition away from energy markets that used to be publicly owned. They used to be nationalized. They turned it into a sort of like a weird privatized energy type market and they invented this system as a way and it, it worked while it worked it worked you know and then suddenly it's mm. absolutely banjax because the price of gas makes all the all the electricity from everywhere all the energy wherever it's made from whether it's solar or whatever it's making it enormously expensive because of the way that marginal pricing works so it's screwed and uh, yeah governments are fearing social unrest there's protests on the streets in many countries and this is only the beginning we've actually had a quite a mild autumn so there's a lot of fear about what is going to happen when it gets worse um and they're scrambling around uh, for something to do about it and so far they're throwing money at the problem so they're trying to subsidize people's energy bills um so basically what i'm here in brussels covering right now is all those all those leaders are trying to come up with it uh, like okay can we actually change the market itself so that we don't have those high bills being generated in the first place is there some way of doing that but they're all basically terrified of tinkering with the market in case it has some unexpected knock-on effects like actually then gas suppliers won't want to sell to us because we we screw with their profits in some way and then we get blackouts. That's what they're sort of afraid of. So they're all not sure what to do about it. And it just keeps going around in cycles where the politicians can't agree and they say to the their experts and their officials, can you come up with some new ideas? Then they go back to the politicians again and they can't agree. And then the process starts again. So that's where we are. Okay, right. Yeah, no, yeah, not a pretty picture at all, <laughs> as you say. Okay, so to circle this back then to the current situation uh, in the UK. So we're recording, in case you're listening to this at a later date, we're recording on the 21st um, of October. This is the day after Liz Truss has resigned. Mm -hmm. Uh, The current situation is that Liz Truss announced in her speech that she would uh, have a new prime minister within the next week. And uh, nobody really knows how they're going to do that. There's questions about how they're going to vote, you know, whether the voting would be secure because they want to do a vote online. And there's three names this morning that have more or less resurfaced as potential um, as potential takers for this new role. Uh-huh. And that is uh, Penny Mordaunt, who was in the running for the Conservative election this summer. Uh, Rishi Sunak, who was second in line, and a lot of people would have uh, preferred him in the Conservative Party to live trust. Um, and... <laughs> Boris Johnson, right? Mm. Boris Johnson resurfacing like a swamp monster, <laughs> just slowly rising. Like a turd that just won't flush. <laughs> Naomi. <laughs> sorry, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't, I, have, I shouldn't have called the feckin' possible future PM a turd, sorry. It, this was purely for comedic purposes and doesn't reflect my own opinion indeed. of this human being. Not at all, no, nor, nor Swamp Monster. Um, right, just terrible metaphors that we use here in the <laughs> Irish password. Now, I, I want to ask you two questions. First of all, what is the what has the EU's response been to what just happened? Mm. And secondly, which one of those do you think Brussels would most like to see put Mm. in the seat of power in the UK? It's a good question. Um, The reaction has been um, 
oh dear. Uh, basically, <laughs> everyone's saying it would be good to have stability in the UK again, uh, because right now we're facing this energy crisis and the war in Ukraine. And the UK actually remains a really important security and defense power um, partner, rather, for European countries. Even even when they're rowing about other things, they still see that they're actually on on in terms of war and conflict on the same side. And the UK is pretty important because it's still a significant military power, and it was very important in providing weapons to Ukraine, for example, earlier than others did. Mm. So um, that remains the case. And what you hear is like. We remain fr- very good friends, neighbours. We're a friend country to the UK. We wish them well. It would be good for them to have stability. I've noticed that politicians have been a little bit wary to be like, this is all your fault because of Brexit, just because it's not very constructive. But the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, Xavier Bettel, did go there this morning. He did say that. He was like, yeah, it's because of Brexit. I think the biggest mistake was Brexit, and this brought a lot of instability. But uh, I hope that they soon be be stable, because even if they're not family members, they're still a friend and a neighbour. So, in general, yeah, they'd say we want stability. We look forward to constructive relations with whoever the next prime minister is. It's a friend country, and also you do hear like a little bit of sympathy for Truss as a human being as well, because I think these people mm. are all, you know, they're all prime ministers and stuff, so they probably identify a little bit with someone in that position, and they're like, oh my god, like fuck, she just got like humiliatingly ejected from office after forty four mm. days, like, and they had a fucking live stream of a lettuce to test whether the lettuce would last longer than she did as prime minister. I mean, it was brutal. So, you know, and like, yeah. Um, So there's a certain amount of sympathy. I mean, listen, I, I, I understand this. And I think you've kind of been hearing this from the British public as well, when they've been interviewed about this, a certain sympathy for Liz Truss. And I mean, like, I think everyone is pretty aware that Liz Truss would have been just as ruthless and just as shameless as Boris Johnson uh, if she had the chance to stay on a little bit longer. Uh, We certainly saw glimpses of that. Um, But, you know, he was given so many outs. The way people just, you know, parroted lines, you know, like I've come to kind of believe after the last six years of Tory rule in the UK that if the Tories say something three times to their voters, that their voters will just repeat it, you know, for the next year. So things like um, he got all the good calls right. They said that they just kept saying that, and then you you started hearing it from the public. The public said, yeah. "Well, he got all the good calls right, didn't he? Um, or he got Brexit done, didn't he?" It's like you know, almost kind of like lit- literal parrots, like they're actual at, mimicry. They're good at coming up with these catchy phrases. I notice this in all sorts of things as well. There's, I actually want, yeah, I want, yeah. I want a technology that will allow me to trace the usage of certain phrases like that because it's something I notice all the time. Like when it comes to Ukraine, there were certain phrases like "fight to the last Ukrainian." That that was that became you began to you began to hear that like cited as policy positions and it actually started from mm. Russian propaganda. Unwinnable war wow. was another one. Like there's there's these phrases like literally came from like Russian state television and then started oh. to be said by sort of like critics of supporting Ukraine and then they ended up in you you'd actually hear it from like really like high up either officials or or like political leaders. You know, when they're speaking, mm. not necessarily publicly, but privately. Uh, another one was um, the Russians know how to suffer. I heard that one so many times. It was like, oh, you know, the European citizens won't basically stick. They won't stick it out with this war. You know, they'll throw out their governments. Uh, they won't have what it takes to endure any suffering if that's what it means to support Ukraine. Whereas the Russians will suck it up, you know, and suffer, which is like 
which it's it I I feel like it's this um weird sort of um like orientalist look at the uh, at Russia where we sort of exoticize Russia you know as being something that's like, like this this country that's like inherently different where you know you, you imagine these like long suffering people and like gulags or something like that it's this crazy romanticization that doesn't have to do with the actual reality on the ground which is that the Russian leadership Vladimir Putin the president has done absolutely everything he can to avoid the, his population feeling the consequences of this war or certainly any of the population who matter like people in moscow and look at the reaction mm. to conscription for example anyway sorry that was a little aside yeah i know what you mean about the catchphrases <laughs> taking off in the uk they're totally meaningless i see that as well yeah oh, it's kind of a global phenomenon but the, yeah. the tory party has been particularly kind of adamant at it i yeah. mean they, they've really kind of they're good at it the main sometimes Quite, I mean, yeah, I suppose they are. I mean, it feels like yeah. they're kind of relying on them a little bit too much um, in the last few years, just because they don't really have substance behind a lot of what they actually say. Um, but I've seen another one. I just saw Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, he came out with a little graphic and it says Boris or bust. And I'm like, ah, wow. Yeah. Well, here we go. we're going to hear that now. We're definitely yeah, we're going to hear, hear it now. Um, yeah. I've noticed that they're always, it's always three words, if possible. Yeah, Try true. and make it three words. And they work better if they rhyme. Mm, or yeah, that depressing. one has alliteration, right? Boris or Bust. Right. Brexit yeah, means Brexit. Go. Stupid shit. Like it, it actually prevents. Brexit means like, Brexit. Yeah. It, like Brexit means Brexit is literally a meaningless phrase. Like deliver, deliver, deliver. Like like we say, it's like contentless. Um, yeah. It's. But incredibly it's, effective. I, like they've worked out that if they say this at their voters enough, that their voters will say it very earnestly as a reason why they're still supporting <laughs> them. So you, I mean, you actually hear people on the streets repeating these lines, saying that's the reason that they're supporting. Let's Theresa May. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I've lost track of them. How many of them? <laughs> Theresa yeah. May, Boris Johnson, the whole lot. Um, um, oh, you know, um, because Brexit means Brexit, or because um, because he got all the good calls right, and it's like he told you to say that. Did, don't, didn't you? <laughs> you know he just told you to say that. I'm like, have you thought about it at all? Like, <laughs> The aim is to like introduce these things as conventional wisdom. So they just sound like common yeah. sense and they just get exactly. in. But it prevents you from actual analysis of policies and testing policies against objective reality. Um, mm-hmm. Like if you look, I find it fascinating to look at sort of interviews on television in like, from like the 1970s and 1980s, where you have been, people being interviewed and they give these long considered answers, like very eloquent answers. And now mm. it's like, it's about the message. It's like government by press release instead of government by content of policy. And the this whole hectic instability and madness and like day-to-day change of chancellor or people in the cabinet or whatever constant intrigue it actually prevents scrutiny of the underlying policy of what people are trying to achieve because you're racing to keep up with the latest drama whatever it is which is ultimately like not very meaningful like it's ephemeral it's going to be different in like a few hours time or 24 hours time and you don't get to actually analyze you know what's a good decision for the people and what's a bad one you know what's a good policy and what's a bad one and what are they doing you know yeah absolutely and the sheer intensity of ephemeral drama uh, in the last few days i was really struck now i don't know if, if you caught wind of this um mm. but there were a few really nasty uh, little uh, elements to this mm. um i don't know if you heard 
Penny Mordaunt, I believe, was standing in for Liz Truss in the House of Commons while she was basically hiding, right? Um, (laughs) And the the opposition asked whether she was hiding under a desk. And then Penny Mordaunt um, very calculatedly said, the Prime Minister is not hiding under a desk. Which, you know, is obviously like, why did you just... Why did you just repeat that, right? Um, you know, like she she made a soundbite. Like obviously, mm. it, it was like your it was like your like frenemy or something being really passively aggressively mean to you uh, while pretending to actually uh, have your back. It I was think. obviously a dig. Like it was this terrible dig. The leader of the house suggests that we should be grateful that the prime minister has made a difficult decision. And I presume she means grateful that she's stuck to it, given the number of U-turns that we've seen over the last couple days. But that's the job. And all we know right now is, unless she tells us otherwise, that the Prime Minister is cowering under her desk and asking for it all to go away. Isn't it about time she did and let somebody else who can make decisions in the British national interest get in charge instead? Well, the Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk, as the... we have Aswella Braverman who um, resigned was one of the resignations some of the resignations were unresigned by the way during this time it's just (laughs) chaos (laughs) I know the reports were crazy people being bullied and manhandled and screaming and crying and crazy but yeah Braverman yeah crying in the toilets of the House of Commons it was reported that (laughs) sorry this is not funny but Tory MPs were crying in the toilets of the House of Commons Um, and Swella Braverman's resignation letter is saying um, that well I'm resigning because when you do something wrong you should resign unlike some people and I was just thinking like do you understand what's happening around you even during this complete implosion of the country's government their top priority those two people's top priority were these petty um professional jibes to try and get ahead in like their personal promotion yeah exactly unbelievable Yeah, uh, that also dropped, like, that resignation letter came out, which is this key moment when people were like, oh, oh, you know, trust isn't getting through this. Uh, that came out when I was actually in an embassy, like, getting briefed. So, like, I was in a big room of journalists and we were, like, hearing about what's going to come up at, like, the EU leaders meeting. And you just saw people sort of checking their phones and, like, afterwards people were like, you know, Braverman's gone. Like, there was this kind of, like, Netflix quality to it where people were observing it in Brussels and just being like what's happened now and like with a sort of fascinated horror you know and then like I heard (laughs) I heard the diplomat like get the news afterwards and he was like my god like he was reading that letter like I mean the reaction like people were amazed to see what was happening you know like it really was pretty striking Mm. and just like the sheer drama of it like just compelling international viewing but um in terms of like which one of them 
people internationally prefer. Honestly, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, because the thing is, right, if you get someone who's a moderate, in quotes, or like who's a steady hand or something, the nature of the Conservative Party is that that person is going to have to prove their credentials to the crazies and the loons in order to get mm. their position. So like there's this, that's the imperative that's like locked in to whoever comes leader. Like you have to vow to believe things that aren't true and pursue things that don't make sense. Um, and you know, that, that up is down and so on in order to get that position. Um, so, you know, th then the, the contrary logic that you sometimes hear is like, oh, if you get someone who just has the confidence of the hardliners, like let's say Boris Johnson, because he has the confidence yeah. of the hardliners, he has the authority to actually make compromises. So it might be that, say, he's the only one that could actually get through something like a, an agreement on the protocol because he's going to be able to bring them with him without causing a rebellion and the government to fall or whatever. So I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I don't know who they'd prefer. I think they just want protocol sorted and they just want, like, one prime minister in place um, just for, like a predictable like period of time and n not this constant discussion about who should be prime minister just you know a period of rule if you if you ask me i think the their favorite prime minister at this point would be keir starmer as by the way would be that of that would be also be the favorite of the british public according to polls since labor has mm. some crazy lead like they're they're on a lead of like 40 points or something like that um so mm. yeah i mean clearly if you were to ask the british public they would elect a labor government right now and i think so would international partners um just because the the conservative party just seems so riven by these rivalries um and you know this these these toxic um, constant backstabbing, you know, and and sort of a prioritization of personal advancement, and in lieu of that, advancements of the party over, you know, what they're actually supposed to be doing as politicians, which is actually th the idea of it is they're supposed to be getting what's right for their people, not getting power and personal advantage for themselves. Old-fashioned idea, maybe, but like that's the whole idea, isn't it? Yeah. So they, I think they would probably pick Keir Starmer. And in terms of the three, those three names that you mentioned, um, I'd say they're probably just glad it's not like Braverman or one of these like real, you know, edgy characters. Um, I think they'll just like, they won't say anything. They won't, they won't prefer any candidate. They'll just be like, look, this is a matter for, for the UK to, to sort out and whoever it is, then we'll work with them and, you know, try to have a constructive relationship basically. Okay, all right. Well, listen, guys, um, I hope that not too much of what we've just said has gone completely out of date within the next hour by the time <laughs> you listen to this podcast. Um, but we'll, uh, we might come back to this uh, in a few weeks once there is or if there is a new prime minister in the UK by then. Um, and in the meantime, thank you so much, Naomi, for filling us in on the politics side there. And I want to remind all you guys that we released an episode. <laughs> we released an episode on the day that Liz Truss resigned uh, on, it was the final installment of the War of Independence uh, and nobody noticed because everyone <laughs> was looking somewhere else. I was just like, so what? Tell us tell us about this to us. So yes, here you are. And you can enjoy the War of Independence one, which is out there at your leisure over the weekend or whenever you want. Um, it'll remain, it won't date. With a debrief as well on our Patreon. Yeah, um, bonus content over on Patreon. We're doing these debriefs where we sort of like break down, you know, what do we think during the making the episode or whatever um, over on Patreon. And yeah, so join us over there at patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. All right. Slán, everyone. Slán.